Would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks for this beautiful day and for the chance to gather together to worship you and to proclaim your gospel in our midst as we pray that your gospel spreads to the ends of the earth, to all nations, peoples, and tribes, and languages. We praise you and give you the glory as we come now before you to hear your word. Open our hearts and our minds to receive from you, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be with you all again. Uh, for those of you who maybe haven't met me before, my name is Father Scott. Um, I'm a priest in the diocese. My family worships with Christ Church West Shore, um, your sister parish, uh, further on the west side. Uh, I'm not uh, on staff or in charge of any church, however, in the diocese, and so that gives me the ability to serve from time to time as there's need. So I'm glad to stand in uh, for Father Sean as they expect their newest addition to their family. And so I was happy to take the call and come and be among you again. So it's good to be with you. Uh, today is uh, World Mission Sunday. It's the second uh, to last Sunday in Epiphany season. We take this time to think and reflect on world missions and the gospel going out to the world. So I'm glad to be with you on this somewhat special occasion as we consider world missions. World missions has, has played a part in my own faith story. The very first time I left the country, I was still in middle school. I got the chance to go on a mission trip with my church to Guatemala. We were serving with a local pastor there of an evangelical church. Um, he was a, a pastor, like many in, in other parts of the world, where he served multiple communities because each community couldn't afford to hire a full-time uh, pastor to serve their church, and so he served multiple communities. And so we went with him. We were putting on VBS programs for kids, and we would travel to these remote villages. And I remember having to put, like, boards on the road sometimes where there were big potholes or drop-offs um, as we would go to these remote places. Um, and it was my first exposure as a young man to people who are living in poverty, these people who mostly only had one set of clothes, sometimes not enough clothes, a lot of the kids were running around barefoot, uh, large families living in these small one-room houses, and it was a really eye-opening experience to me. Um, it got to, to show me kind of the, the blessings and privileges that I enjoy, and uh, in a way that I hadn't really realized before seeing that. But it was also an opportunity to see what encouragement and hope and joy the gospel brings to people in situations very different from my own. Since that time, I've gotten to, to worship with churches around the world in many different countries, and I've met missionaries and pastors and priests and bishops from Europe and Africa and Australia, South America, and every time I travel around and have these experiences, it expands my horizon. And what I find is that no matter what culture you're in, the gospel is still the same. The gospel doesn't change. No matter where you're from, you need to hear that God loves you. That in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And God has made a way to reconcile you to himself. And that you can have fellowship with God and with one another. And that the resurrection brings us a hope of new life in God. 
Regardless of what language you speak or what culture you come from, that gospel is still true and is still the same. And yet, the day-to-day concerns of the faith are different depending on where you are. As we think about what it means to share the gospel and make disciples, that's going to look different if you're in a rich suburb or a small village in Guatemala where most of your congregation is struggling to make basic ends meet and maybe doesn't have enough food to eat. The problems and concerns that your people face then are going to be different. And what the gospel means and how life is transformed with the gospel is going to change. How do you make disciples is going to be different if your neighbors are worshiping other gods, rather if they're atheists and don't believe in any god. The dangers you face for the gospel are going to be different if you simply face ridicule or if you live in a country where your life might be threatened by your Muslim or pagan neighbors. Whether you face possible persecution and imprisonment because it's illegal to worship in public and profess Christ outwardly. So world missions can give us this broader perspective. It can open up our eyes and challenge the things that we normally think and care about when we think about the gospel and give us a larger picture of what God's kingdom is and how the gospel is spreading around the world and the impact that it makes on people's lives. So this Sunday for World Mission Sunday, after the service, there's going to be a presentation in the fellowship hall. I invite all of you to join and to consider and think for a, for a time, for a day, about what it would be like to be a Christian in another part of the world, and how might the gospel be different for your day-to-day life if your circumstances were different than your own. And I invite your eyes to be opened to a broader perspective. Our gospel passage for World Mission Sundays is a, probably a very familiar one to most of you often called the Great Commission out of Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus calls the disciples and tells them to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. This is a key passage when we think about the purpose of the church and our mission. For us here, it should cause us to contemplate what does it look like to make disciples in Lakewood, Ohio? What do people need to hear to be taught to follow the commands of Jesus in the greater Cleveland area? But this passage is also a call to world missions, to go to all the nations and preach the gospel. And so I invite us to consider this passage this morning in a way that might broaden our perspective and see our place as among the nations to whom Jesus is sending the disciples. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them or you can pull out your leaflet. We're going to look through Matthew chapter 28. It begins in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Just as we have four Gospels, we have four different accounts of Jesus commissioning the disciples. They're not all the same. They're likely different uh, times that Jesus visited them after his resurrection. This story in Matthew's Gospel begins by the disciples going to a mountain. This is a peculiar feature. None of the other Gospels have this story taking place on a mountaintop. 
And so it should cause us to question why this mountain setting. Matthew's Gospel has three key stories that take place on mountains. If you do a study of the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he has his most famous teaching called the Sermon on the Mount, where he goes to a mountainside and teaches his disciples. In the middle of the Gospel, he invites a small group of disciples to the top of a mountain where the glory of the Lord is revealed and he's transfigured before their eyes. As we'll study next, you'll study next week in the Transfiguration Sunday. You'll look at that story. And then here, as the very end of Matthew's Gospel, we have Jesus once again going to a mountain, this time to call his disciples and send them out on a mission. So these three quite literal mountaintop experiences, that's a phrase we use a lot, right? Mountaintop. But these are literally Jesus on a mountain with his disciples. They're epiphany moments. We're in the season of epiphany, right? These are moments where Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples, and they're getting new eyes to see who he is and what his mission is. And if you look at that broader context and the language that's used, uh, what Matthew is doing is he's making a parallel to the Israelites' encounter with God on Mount Sinai. There's this really important moment for the Jewish people where God revealed his glory on Mount Sinai. After he had freed the people from slavery in Egypt and rescued them from death, he brought them to the foot of a mountain where they worshipped him, just like we see the disciples doing here. We see, through Moses, God gives the people his laws and commandments, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue we read this morning. The glory of God is revealed through clouds in which he speaks in a booming voice that causes the people uh, to stand in awe and fall down in worship of him. And Moses' face shines like light, just like Jesus's at the Transfiguration. And at Mount Sinai, God called his people and made them into a chosen people. And throughout the Old Testament, Israel is seen as a chosen people, a blessed and holy nation, but they are called to be a blessing to the nations. God promised them that through their blessing, all the peoples of the earth would also be blessed. They are called at Mount Sinai to be a nation of priests, which means that they as a people will atone for the sins of the world and be a blessing and bring forgiveness to the nations through their calling. And so, in Matthew's Gospel, we see that Jesus is replaying and fulfilling, if you will, this Sinai experience. We see Jesus giving his disciples the commandments, teaching them God's ways, teaching them what it means to be the kingdom of God. We see Jesus revealing his glory and being transfigured. We see Jesus then calling his people to be like a, a nation of priests, a chosen people that would bless the nations. And so the Great Commission, our Gospel reading this morning, Matthew 28, is then a fulfillment of these promises to Israel and a fulfillment of what they were called to be. It stretches all the way back to our Genesis reading today, Genesis chapter 12, where God promised Abraham, then known as Abram, the, the 
the founding father of the Israelite nation. And he promises him, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so here today we see that Jesus is fulfilling that promise by sending the disciples to the nations, to all the families of the earth, to bless them. But it's of note to to see that in this story, Jesus is not in the place of Moses. In the Sinai story, Moses went up on the mountain, God came and spoke to him and gave him a message that then he brought down to the people to deliver. But in our passage, Jesus isn't in that place. He is in the place of the Lord himself. Look again at verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Just as the Israelites worshipped God at Mount Sinai. And Jesus says in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is a bold statement to make. And if Jesus is not truly God and in the place of the maker of heaven and earth, then it would be a blasphemous statement. And yet he makes it. And Jesus stands in the place of the God of Israel, the maker of heaven and earth, with all authority given to him, and then sends the disciples out. This is such an important thing for us to realize as we consider our own mission. As we go to make disciples and teach people what Jesus commanded, who do we believe that Jesus is? What are we making disciples of? What are we teaching them? When I think about world missions, I realize that many people around the world respect Jesus. There are many Buddhists and Taoists and Hindus who see Jesus as a wise sage, as a teacher to follow, perhaps like Buddha, someone who's enlightened. Yet they do not worship Jesus. Many Muslims and Sikhs and Baha'i see Jesus as a holy man and a prophet in the line with Abraham and Moses and for some perhaps Muhammad. And so they respect him as as a prophet and as a miracle worker. But they do not worship him. We are not called simply to go and tell, hey, look at Jesus. He's a great example of how to live your life. He has great teachings that you can learn. Look to Jesus. He's a prophet like Moses and Muhammad. No, we are called to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to make disciples of Jesus because Jesus is the Lord God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of heaven and earth, and all authority has been given to him. This is who sends the disciples out. And so he gives his his famous command, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. As we consider this passage within a broader context, and see it as a fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, and another uh, parallel version of the Mount Sinai experience, one of the things that might stand out to us 
is that we're not actually the original recipients of this command. We're the receivers of it. If we put ourselves in the story, Jesus isn't first and foremost telling us to go out. We are the nations. We're the ones who have received the message from the apostles. In the book of Acts, as Jesus gives the commands, he tells the disciples to preach the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. In 21st century America, living in a time that Jesus and his followers did not experience, living in a nation that they didn't even know existed, in a continent around the world, we are the ends of the earth. We are the nations who have received the gospel. Seeing this passage from this perspective can give us new eyes and a change of position as we read the story. So often when we come to Scripture, we're quick to hear Jesus' words as coming directly to us. And they do speak to us, certainly. But we can also stand back and consider where we fit into the story. We are not the ones for whom the promises of Israel were given. We are inheritors of that promise because they have been extended to us in the grace of Jesus Christ. Because the disciples were faithful and delivered the gospel and made disciples of all nations, starting in Jerusalem. I say that because I think this distinction is important. There's a long history in the world of Europeans first and then Americans putting ourselves in the center of the story. We tend to think of ourselves as a chosen people and a promised nation on whom the gospel weighs on our shoulders. There's this bad tendency in our country to see Americans as greater than the rest of the world. And our gospel today shifts that perspective around and puts us in a new standing as one among the nations to have received the gospel. This can give us a different perspective and open us up to a new way of looking. So often when we think about the church, I really think we're thinking of the American church. So when we think the church has this or that problem, or I don't like that the church does this or that, or the church is facing these challenges today, or this is the condition of the church, so often what we're thinking about is just the churches around us that we can see. And God is inviting us to a bigger perspective to see that some of those problems and challenges and questions and things that we're facing are more about us being Americans than they are about being disciples of Jesus. And there are some things that maybe we don't think about day to day that are really challenges and problems that the, the church universal is facing that are tremendously important to some of our brothers and sisters overseas. God is inviting us to this bigger, broader perspective of what the church is among the nations. Our passage concludes with Jesus saying, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Just as God's presence went with Israel off of Mount Sinai into the wilderness and the promised land, so Jesus is promising his disciples as he sends them out that he will go with them. 
If you recall back to the Exodus story, the people uh, of Israel were not exactly good at following God's commandments. And right away, immediately after Moses gave them the commands, they turned to worship an idol of gold. Moses gets so angry that he slams the stone tablets and breaks them. And a whole bunch of Israelites end up dying as a result of this. And God threatens that he's no longer going to go with his people because they are stiff-necked and stubborn and sinful. And God is a holy God who cannot mingle with the sinful people. But Moses pleads with God, saying, if you don't go with us, then we'll surely die. And if you don't go with us, then how will the nations know that you saved us and have blessed us? Israel could not have accomplished their mission if God had not gone with them. So he provided a way through the tabernacle that his presence would be with them. So too with us as Christians, as followers of Jesus. Our mission will not succeed unless the presence of God is with us. Unless Jesus goes with us, we will fail in our mission to make disciples and teach all that God has commanded us. But thankfully, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, his presence is no longer limited to a tabernacle, but rather his spirit goes with us wherever the gospel is proclaimed and wherever disciples of Jesus gather together in his name. The vision of the mission of the church, the end goal of the Great Commission, is not that there will be a new nation with a new tabernacle and a new temple where everyone can go to worship God, but rather that God's Spirit will be throughout the earth with all peoples. His presence will not be limited to one place or one nation or one peoples. But indeed, the vision of the end of the mission of the church is the one we get in Revelation a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing together before the throne of God, in the midst of his presence and his glory. And so here we are, in 21st century America, the ends of the earth, amongst the nations, and God's call continues to go out to us today to carry forward that vision of all peoples together worshiping God from all different cultures and languages and backgrounds, a people chosen by God to worship him and share his glory with the world. I thought I would end our time on World Mission Sunday together by looking at this this little booklet called The Cape Down Commitments from the Luzanne movement. And this, I think, is fitting to what I see in our gospel reading to get today and how it can decenter us from putting ourselves at the center and think of us more in the place of the nations. The Luzanne movement, with a mi- the Luzanne movement began with a mission conference in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1910. And when they gathered together, it was mostly a bunch of white guys. It was Europeans, Americans, North Americans that got together 
to plan how are we going to spread the gospel around the world and fulfill the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. In 2010, a hundred years later, they met together in Cape Town in South Africa. And it was a vastly different image. It is what some people have said is the most diverse gathering of Christians ever. Christians not only from Europe and North America, but South America, from Asia, from Africa. This great group of people from different denominations, different nationalities, different languages, different tribes, coming together to agree on what the Great Commission means here in the 21st century. And so I commend it to you, the Luzanne, Luzanne uh, Conference. Their stuff is available online. This is called the Cape Town Commitment. The whole thing, there was my bookmark. Uh, the whole thing is available for you to read online. They created a confession of faith as a joint statement of what we believe across different nationalities. And then they put out a call to action which goes through sort of the current state of world missions and what it means to carry forth the Great Commission here and now. And I just wanted to read to you from their Confession of Faith what I think is a good summary of many of the points that we've looked at this morning. The tenth point of their Confession of Faith says, We love the mission of God. We are committed to world mission because it is central to our understanding of God, the Bible, the Church, human history, and the ultimate future. The whole Bible reveals the mission of God to bring all things in heaven and earth into unity under Christ, reconciling them through the blood of his cross. In fulfilling his mission, God will transform the creation broken by sin and evil into the new creation, in which there is no more sin or curse. God will fulfill his promise to Abraham to bless all nations of the earth through the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the seed of Abraham. God will transform the fractured world of nations that are scattered under the judgment of God into the new humanity that will be redeemed by the blood of Christ from every tribe, nation, people, and language, and will be gathered to worship our God and Savior. God will destroy the reign of death, corruption, and violence when Christ returns to establish his eternal reign of life, justice, and peace. Then, God, Emmanuel, will dwell with us, and the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.